Park. It's good to be here. Um, a joy and a privilege. My name is Jim White. Um, I'm one of the, the members here, and I have the privilege and joy to get to fill in once in a while to preach and teach. So, um, Our text for today is Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Uh, and if you haven't grabbed one of the, the um, companions, the, the book of Luke, um, in the back and the welcome table, you, sh- you should do that. Uh, you can even sneak out right now and do that if you'd like. Uh, it'll be your companion for the next year or two as we work our way through the book of Luke. So um, it's nice because you can take notes right in there. You can bring it with to the missional community groups as we re- you know, re- kind of go over the text a little bit together again in that context. So it's nice to have. So Luke three twenty three through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, and the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mina, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Pharxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Holy Spirit who promises to give us understanding and wisdom and knowledge, and we just pray that my words will, will be suppressed and only your words will come through as we study this text and that your Holy Spirit would open the hearts and minds of those sitting here today. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. It's truly amazing to think and consider that we have a God, the God, the creator of the universe, who chooses to communicate with us. And he does this, as we believe, through his word, through the Bible. As Noah pointed out um, in his introduction to the Luke series, and Thomas reiterated uh, last week, we at Park Hyde Park believe that the, all scriptures is breathed out by God, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. So, when we encounter a text like a genealogy, we don't just skip it. Instead, we dig in. We try to understand what is it that God has for us in this text. It's not easy sometimes, but it's worth the effort. What does God want us to learn about him through this genealogy? 
Why did the Holy Spirit guide Luke to include this genealogy in his version of the gospel story? I propose that this genealogy teaches us the following, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became fully human so that he could save his people from all nations. And the genealogy will help us to understand with certainty that Jesus is the promised forever king, the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus became fully human, and Jesus became human to save his people. Our text is a second in three vignettes that Luke uses as a transition from the early stories of his birth um, and, and uh, that pretty much this whole section we skipped and we'll come back to in Advent, um, and then transitioning into Jesus' full-time ministry. Uh, it started in chapter 3 with Jesus' baptism, where the Holy Spirit descended upon him and God said, you are my beloved son. So Luke wants us to know that Jesus is fully God, the son of God. This week's genealogy tells us that Jesus was born in the line of Adam. And Luke wants us to know that Jesus is fully human. Next week's text in chapter 4, we will show us that although Jesus is fully human, he was victorious when tempted by sin because he was fully God. And then Luke concludes this whole interlude in telling us that Jesus is now ready to begin his full-time ministry. And then our text starts out with the the phrase, at about age 30, which is the age that a a priest would enter the priesthood um, as he serves in the temple. So let's dig into the genealogy. You heard all those names. Um, The genealogies are messy. So if you think about your genealogy, your lineage, your 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 lifeline, your your um, your lineage, it's it's um, how many generations deep can you recite the names of your parents and great grandparents and and on further back? It's it gets messy pretty quickly, um, especially. If you have, you know, divorce and remarriage, or you know, a death and remarriage, or adoption, all of that adds to kind of a, a, a convoluted, um, you know, difficult uh, lineage to put together, and most of us really can't go back too far in our in our genealogies. Um, yeah. So the, eh, yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, it's back up here. Good. The, so our genealogy could look like this pretty quickly. If you're lucky, you can dig back uh, that far. Um, one of the times uh, I I was able to spend some time. We have things like Ancestry.com and online, you know, digi- digitized databases. And I was able to. I wanted to find my Viking roots in Norway. Um, and so I did some research. I went out there and just started and found some uh, scanned images of the church books. So in, in, they're very organized in Norway. And so each church parish has a book, and they put in your, your birth, your marriage, and then your death. And, and you have the signatures of parents. You have the signatures of those getting married. And you can see all these images. And if you don't understand what's, the, what's being said or the titles of the books and things like that, you can just copy and paste it and then have a translator translate it. So it's amazing what kinds of tools we have. And with all those tools available to me, I was only able to get through five generations. I couldn't trace it back to the Vikings, but I got through five generations. So I was thrilled. And it was, so it was James of Donald, of Ernest, of Hawkins, of Rasmus. Now, Luke lists 77 generations. And he did it all without a computer or online database. By comparison, and we do have to compare Luke and Matthew to some extent, Matthew only has 42 generations in his genealogy. And the two genealogies only overlap at a couple of points. Like I said, genealogies are a little bit messy. 
There are those who argue that the Bible is not reliable and it couldn't be God's word because there's a difference between those two genealogies and that clearly there's errors in our Bible and so therefore our Bible is not trustworthy. So how do we respond uh, to those types of arguments, especially here in the University of Chicago? We have some scholars who will argue that your Bible is not reliable. So how do we respond? How do we deal with the genealogy that Luke presents to us? Uh, here, here are a few things to, to consider as we think about that question. Luke includes 11 groups of seven generations. He includes David, Abraham, and Adam as major figures. A few of our names in the list, um, you can cross-reference and get some history in the Old Testament scriptures and learn more about the, 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 the men that are listed there. But many of the names in Luke's genealogy are actually unknown. They're, this, they're, they only appear in the genealogy in the scriptures, so it's kind of hard to really do any much research. Matthew, by comparison, lists three groups of 14 generations, including David again, and only goes back as far as Abraham. Actually, he starts with Abraham, moves forward to Jesus through the lineage. Matthew includes a few more names that are, are recognizable, and we could research and cross-reference in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and he, include, he includes women's names, and he includes Gentile names. But Luke's is a little more stripped, stripped bare from all those things. One thing they do have in common is, as Noah mentioned, just this um, uh, just you know, failed men, men who have failed, uh, some in absolute rebellion, some like David who is, you know, in, in the eyes of God, um, you know, righteous, yet even he failed miserably. So they all have that in common uh, throughout the genealogies. Both genealogies overlap mostly around the well-known characters like David and Abraham. Behind, beyond that, they don't line up very well. So remember Noah mentioned in his introduction to Luke, um, Luke was meticulous in his research in reconstructing the gospel narrative of Jesus so that we might know with certainty. That's the phrase from the first verse. So we should have relative high confidence level in Luke's reconstruction of Jesus' genealogy. Now I realize that does not hold up in the, in the academic world. Nobody cares about how we feel about our, the, the, the confidence in Luke's ability to put the genealogy together. But for us, it should, uh, just the fact that Luke was so careful in writing the gospel message, it should give us a level of confidence um, in, in God's word and that what we have is true here. Here are a few other things to consider as we look at genealogies in general. Ancient Near Middle Eastern cultures, Jewish culture being one of those, um, relied heavily on the oral tradition for remembering where they came from. These genealogies were carefully rehearsed and handed down from, for centuries, from generation to generation, and Luke was able to take advantage of that tradition. There are different ways to, listen, uh, to list the generations. You can list them following the legal lineage or the actual lineage. What does that mean? So, for example, in modern-day world, we have adoption. That would change it from uh, um, actual lineage to a legal lineage. So, again, it makes um, you know, genealogies a little more difficult to trace and to really find out where, where, where it goes from one, one end to the other. Uh, in the Old Testament um, scriptures, according to Mosaic law, when a man dies without leaving any children behind, um, his brother is now required to marry the deceased widow, the, the, marry the widow of the deceased, and, and that the purpose of that is to keep the line of his brother alive, to keep that line moving through gen generations to generations. 
Um, again, and, and we probably we think that that might be some of the reasons for some of the differences in um, Luke's and Matthew's genealogy as well. Another factor to consider, and this is probably one of the bigger ones in uh, Luke's um, genealogy, is in the Greek, it doesn't say the son of. It doesn't say the son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed. It actually says of David, of Jesse, of Obed. So in my case, in my family, it would be James of Ernest, uh, of Donald of Ernest. I can't even get mine right. <laughs> James of Donald of Ernest of Hawkins. Or you could say James of Hawkins, and you could skip two generations, and it would still be accurate. So there's, there's explanations for why there's differences and why, why they don't necessarily line up. Um, it is true. We just don't have all the answers as to why the two genealogies are so different. But these are, there are plausible arguments behind those differences, and thousands of scholars have written thousands of pages of arguing for various considerations. But what we really should be spending our energy on is, not, is to understand why Luke included the genealogy and what he wants us to know with certainty by including the genealogy the way he wrote it. So first, Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of Scripture. In Luke 24, 44, we'll get to that in a year or so or two, <laughs> um, he tells his disciples. So there, this is after the resurrection, and they're, they're out fishing, and he's cooking, cooking fish for them for breakfast, which is not my preference. Um, and and, so, and he's, he's talking to them. He's teaching them again. Um, and so in verse 44, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what was written about Jesus in the scriptures that were supposed to be fulfilled? There are many promises that we can trace, trace through, but since we're dealing with the genealogy, we will look at um, you know, David and, and the lineage there. So one of the promises that God promised is a forever king, the Messiah, a savior. God promised King David that his kingdom would, be, would last forever, as we read in 2 Samuel 7.16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, for your throne shall be established forever. We now know that Jesus was the forever king that was promised here. The genealogy makes it clear that Jesus is a rightful heir in the line of King David and qualifies to be this forever king. And again, in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, the prophet tells us that the promised king will come from the root of Jesse. And it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So Jesus is the rightful heir in the line of King David and Jesse. Isaiah's prophecy comes true, as Luke points out in his genealogy, the son of David, the son of Jesse the son of Obed. We know that David did not fulfill this promise, the son of Jesse, um, because he died. So clearly there is no forever kingdom there. So the people continue to wait for and long for the promised king, the promised Messiah, who is still to come. Isaiah's prophecy continues in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, it says, and it was fulfilled in Jesus when the Holy Spirit descended, upon, descended from heaven upon Jesus at his baptism, as we read in our text last week. Now, this is not to confuse you with the ancient heresy 
Some found it despicable, detestable, the idea that this holy God could somehow become human, this human lowly creature. Um, and so they, they, they denied that that's possible. And they, they kind of came up with the idea that maybe that the Holy Spirit descended upon this man, Jesus, um, and, and at the baptism, and then pretty much left him somewhere at the crucifixion at that point. But that would be uh, to, den- to den- deny um, Isaiah's prophecy that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, God is with us. Or earlier in Luke 2, which we'll, we'll get to in the Advent season, uh, two cha- uh, verse 35. And the angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child... To, uh, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. So make no mistake, Jesus was fully God and fully human at the very moment of conception. So let's continue um, to follow Luke's underlying argument that Jesus is the promised forever king, the Messiah, the Savior. Luke took his genealogy all the way back to Adam. There is even a hint of the promised Savior King in Adam's story in Genesis 3.15. So Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the gospel message. It, be, it, it becomes more and more fully developed and revealed throughout the scriptures as we read more. When Adam and Eve were banned from the garden because of their rebellion, God cursed each one in turn. First Eve, then Adam, and then the serpent. To the serpent, God said in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a reference to Jesus born of a woman, the offspring of Eve. And there will be enmity between the serpent and Jesus. Jesus will rise up as savior and victorious king. So why did Luke include the genealogy? Luke wanted his readers to have certainty that the scriptures prophesied about the coming Savior King and included David and Jesse and Adam in the genealogy that he carefully crafted for his gospel message to us to show us that all promises were converging and becoming fulfilled in Jesus, the man, the Son of God, the forever King, the Messiah. So another reason why Luke included the genealogy and followed Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam was that, he, which he would, that we would know with certainty that Jesus was fully human, that Jesus shared the same roots as we do, that he was one of us. Luke followed Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, and it's interesting how Luke finished the genealogy, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke calls Adam the son of God, and Jesus was also called the son of God. Yet their sonship was qualitatively different. Adam was a created being, created in the image of God. According to John 1.1, before creation, Jesus was with God, and he was God, and all things were created by him. In other words, Jesus took part in that creation of man. Yet Jesus humbled himself and emptied himself and took on the form of human and became one of us. A few years back, uh, Joan Osborne sang a song, some of you probably are humming it in your head already, What If God Was One of Us? 
the chorus wonders, what if God, maybe I'm too old. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. So the chorus goes, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? So there were no buses in Jesus' day, but I'm sure you know as you're, you're tra- if you were traveling between Galilee and Jerusalem and back and forth, you could have been walking side by side with Jesus and never even know it, like a stranger on a bus. Uh, he's not, I doubt he was a slob, but I'm sure as with all the wandering, as we talked about last week, your feet get dusty when you're wearing your sandals, and according to Thomas, your feet get smelly when, at that time too, so Jesus had smelly feet. Um, so not a slob, but dusty and tired from the travel. He was one of us. Luke makes it clear that God was one of us. One of the names given to Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, became one of us because he loves us. The gospel gives us a full picture of Jesus' humanity. Here are some of the gospel descriptions of Jesus. It's a long list I have. It paints us a, a full picture. Jesus was clothed in his humanness as a tiny, helpless baby, hungry and clinging to his mother as she swaddled him. Shivering in the cold of the nighttime desert as the family fled to Egypt. As a boy, climbing walls, throwing rocks, and picking up sticks with other boys on their long journey to and from the temple. There's a little artistic um, leeway given here, since we have ballets, and Noah knows what that's like, too. Three boys. Jesus was tempted by Satan with food and drink, tempted with kingship, and tempted with, to flaunt his godly power. Jesus was annoyed or frustrated as his mother asked him to turn water into wine before he was prepared to make himself known to the people. Jesus enjoyed the company of his friends reclining at the table over a good meal. Jesus sang with his disciples. Jesus traveled the countryside to teach and perform miracles. Jesus had compassion on people he touched. He held people who suffered in pain, in sickness, or in their ignorance. Jesus often was tired. Jesus had friends, and some of them were close friends. Jesus lashed out at the religious leaders who sought his death. Jesus knocked over the tables of the money changers in the temple. Jesus wept. Jesus sought isolation and silence regularly to pray. Jesus agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus worried about his mother and made sure she was cared for after his death. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, could still smell the beautiful fragrance from when Mary anointed his feet with oil. Jesus felt abandoned on the cross, and and then he breathed his last. Jesus was fully human and fully God as he hung on the cross and gave up his human life. Jesus was one of us. Jesus became one of us so that we could, he could identify with us with body, mind, and heart, that he might save us. In turn, we can relate to Jesus because he became human like us. Another reason Luke followed Jesus' lineage past Abraham all the way back to Adam was to make Jesus relatable to all of humanity. Matthew started his genealogy with Abraham because Matthew's starting point was the salvation of the Jewish people, and then he expanded that salvation story to all the nations. 
Luke wants all of humanity to be able to relate to Jesus, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. I always find it interesting how we paint pictures of Jesus, not that any of us have any idea what Jesus looks like. Um, A few years back, my mom was really excited because uh, it was Warner Salman was going to have his pictures on on display at the retirement home that she lived in. And Warner Salman is a fairly fairly famous pictures of Jesus, long hair and beard, pretty much a white guy, looking like a hippie from from, uh, California. So um, I was not as excited about the, 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 the show of art in her place, but she was very excited. Somewhere around that time, a year before, a bit later, somewhere around that time, um, I was at a conference on the south side, a church. And during break, I was able to uh, kind of walk around um, the, the children's education wing. And it was really kind of fun to see the murals painted on the walls. And I think that's the next picture. The, the mirrors on the wall were just stories of the Bible, Bible stories, and they're just colorful, adorable paintings of all the different creatures. It's, it's like, this is Moses, I think he was eight feet tall, so it's bigger than life, beautiful paintings, very cute. But I start to, started to notice, like, wait a minute, um, Moses, Noah, and Jesus, they were all painted, everybody was painted as African-American. And sure enough, I mean, Christians around the world, of all nations, tribes, and tongues, throughout the centuries, have been painting images of Jesus to look like them for centuries. So, and I think that's, yep, that's a little bit of everything up there. So over the years, I've thought about that. Is that okay? Is that right? Is that wrong? I don't know. Um, it, you, you have to put it in context of artistic expression, you know, painting and poetry, the fine arts, the song lyrics. They're, they often seek to communicate something that's just out of reach, something that could be, something that isn't but should be. Um, so it, it tries to you know, stretch our minds and hearts in understanding. They want to reach us through our emotions and through our heart and communicate something that goes beyond head knowledge. So just think about the recent Broadway show, Hamilton, where the story of the founding fathers was reimagined. Racial lines were blurred and erased. It was set to hip-hop music, and it created a whole new layer of meaning to the story of this country's founding fathers. And so, why shouldn't we have some artistic license in how we paint Jesus if it makes him more relatable, gives us a greater understanding of Jesus? And in a way, Luke wants us to relate to Jesus in this way, as we all share the same DNA with Adam. We are all brothers in our humanity, and Jesus himself joined in that brotherhood and took on that humanity because he loves us. We should keep in mind that Ultimately, the purpose of relating to Jesus is our own transformation. We are called to put off the old self, put on the new self of righteousness and holiness, be imitators of Christ to become more and more like Christ himself, to look more like him. So Jesus became one of us so that someday we may look like him. Luke wants us to know with confidence that Jesus became fully human, the question is, why? Part of it is to, uh, for us to relate to him. Um, but it, it's more than that. There's a greater reason behind this. To find the answer to this question, we need to dig deeper into the story of Adam. So back to chapter 2 and 3 of Genesis, it tells us that the story about how Adam and Eve enjoyed living in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden. 
However, when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and they ate of the fruit of tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve were no longer able to remain in the presence of God and were ejected from God's presence and barred from the garden. They would have to face death because they could no longer eat of the tree of life in the garden. All of humanity suffered this punishment with Adam and Eve. We are born with Adam's curse of sin and death. We are born separated from God because of our inherent sin, and we all face death sooner or later. And this is the beautiful part of this story. God loved his people and had mercy on them. When he cursed humanity, he also promised a savior at the same time, the offspring of Eve, Jesus. Right at the beginning, God set apart his, set his plan to save his people in motion. First, he set apart a people beginning with Abraham, a people that would, he would call his own, and he would dwell among them. He gave them commandments to follow and provided a sacrificial system that would offer forgiveness for their sins and hold God's wrath at bay. However, this relationship between God and his people was just a shadow of the relationship that Adam and Eve once enjoyed in the garden. A permanent solution was needed to restore our relationship with God and to conquer the power of sin and death. As we work our way through Luke, we will learn more about the permanent solution. But let me give you a, a glimpse of what Luke will unfold in his gospel. Jesus was the fulfillment of God's plan to save his people. And part of that plan was for Jesus to become one of us. Jesus took on human form so he could identify with us and stand in our place and pay the price for our sins with his own blood that we might be free from the power of sin and death and enter present in the presence of God in righteousness and remain there forever. The justice of God required that our sin be paid with the blood of a true and sinless human. Only Jesus, who was fully human but was without sin because he was fully God, qualified for this sacrifice. And Jesus, because of his great love for each and every one of us, each of every one of our, us sinners, willingly gave up his life on the cross that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus took on human form that he might sympathize with us, that he can relate to us as a human in our weakness and help us overcome our temptation as we read in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him to, to help in time of need. Jesus became one of us so that he can help us in our struggle with temptation, so he can be there for us in our pain, because he has experienced it all. He is there in your fear. He can calm the waters of your storm. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused and can sympathize with you if you find yourself under false judgment by others. He knows your deepest shame, and he can relate. He, the Son of God, the Creator himself, hung naked on the cross as the soldiers and onlookers mocked him. He is there in your feelings of abandonment. 
He knows what it's like. He experienced the ultimate abandonment on the cross as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no temptation that you have experienced that Jesus is not familiar with. And out of his great mercy and grace, he is willing to help you through those temptations. He became human because he loves you, so that he could identify with you and help you in your need. Out of his great love for you, he invites you to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you have never responded to the love of Jesus, if you've never known Jesus' love and mercy and grace and peace, he invites you to come. Jesus knows your pain, your loss, your fear, your shame, and your loneliness. He can relate to all of your pain. He offers you freedom from your bondage. He offers your forgiveness for for your sin. He offered his very life that you might know him and love him and be saved by him. If you have already given your life to Jesus, but you, you struggle with patterns of sin, a darkness that just will not lift from your soul, and you have not looked into the face of Jesus in a while, Jesus invites you to come, for he is gentle and humble in heart. He is one of us, so he can sympathize with you in your weakness and your struggle. He knows your temptation, and he invites you to draw near to the throne of grace, that you might receive his mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Come to Jesus. In his humanity, he can relate to you. In his godliness, he can restore you because he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you have reached out to us, that you, our creator, have humbled yourself and descended unto earth to take on human form so that we can relate to you, so you can sympathize with us, and so that you can serve as the perfect sacrifice. We have two sacraments that we celebrate, the baptism and Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper celebrates his humanness, his body that was crucified on the cross, and the blood that he shed on the cross. And we thank you for that, even as we turn our hearts to focusing on uh, the Lord's Supper in the next few minutes. We just thank you, Lord, for your love, and that you are approachable, and that you have stepped towards us and invited us to come. In the name of Jesus.